the assumption that everybody sees cross-border cooperation as both to be welcomed and unproblematic is not correct. And we were perhaps a little bit guilty of, of starting from a set of assumptions. It sits in a much, much broader context, not even the political context. It sits in uh, that kind of macro socio-economic level. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Our theme today is cross-border cooperation in the arts. And our discussion um, is inspired by uh, a report which was commissioned by Aaron's um, and produced by the Audience Agency. It was researched and written by Dr. Stephen Hadley, Dr. Sophia Woodley and Matty Alam. And the name of the report, which has just been published on the Aaron's website, is The Future of Cross-Border Cooperation in the Arts. And I should mention that the research was funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs. I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Stephen Hadley. As I say, he was one of the principal authors of the report. And he has recently left um, NUI Galway and is now a research fellow at Trinity College Dublin. And our other um, participant today, coming at things from a rather different um, point of view, is Darren Ferguson um, from Belfast. Darren has been involved in community work uh, locally and overseas um, for over 30 years. In 2004, he set up the organisation Beyond Skin, the purpose of which is, to quote, enabling the arts of the dialogue to assist the development of a more peaceful, equal and intercultural society free from racism and sectarianism. And he's done an enormous amount uh, in that capacity. Uh, more recently, he's been involved um, as a founding member of the International Campaign for Afghan uh, Musicians. He had previous connections with Afghanistan. Um, and also at the moment, he's very much uh, working with um, people in Northern Ireland seeking asylum um, or refugee status. Um, every day he's meeting them and he's trying as far as he can to assist them, integrate, uh, and to support them, uh, including through participation in the arts. So Stephen and Darren, you're both extremely welcome. Um, Stephen, um, this is a substantial study, uh, and we're going to be talking about some of its main findings and recommendations. But what was the what was the remit of the study? What was the main focus? Um, I guess it was kind of the three elements to it. The, the the first two, which were kind of mapping and data gathering, really to understand what had happened in the past in terms of cross-border cooperation, and then to understand what was happening in the present um, in terms of current activity. So kind of kind of gathering the evidence base, putting all that down in one place as a kind of resource and to, to inform our thinking, and then a lot of research and conversations around what needed to happen going forward. Um, so there was a lot of <clears throat> activity happening on lots of different levels at the individual level, the organizational level, national level, European level. Um, and it was really just an attempt to bring all of that together in one place and then ultimately to make some policy recommendations uh, to, to take the conversation forward. Yes, and we'll come to that in a, in a moment. But in the report, you describe maybe five different reasons for or rationales for cross-border uh, cooperation. Maybe you could summarise them briefly because I found it very helpful in thinking about why arts cooperation matters. Yes, I mean, we... 
didn't speak solely to the arts sector is probably an important thing to say first because we wanted to get a whole range of different perspectives. So we spoke to academics, we spoke to policymakers, we spoke to politicians, we spoke to artists, we spoke to uh, arts organisations. And what became very clear, which kind of feels very obvious when you say it to somebody else, is that depending on who you spoke to, they had a different perception and understanding of what the rationale would be. So we ended up producing this table where we said, well, there were economic rationales for doing this, there were artistic rationales, there were professional development rationales, there were policy rationales. And it became clear that it was just really important to have a way of, of kind of putting into boxes, if you like, those different perspectives, because as in everyday life, as with cross-border cooperation, depending on who you speak to, you will get a different perspective of what the, of what the purposes and rationales are, I think. I mean, I suppose from the um, the broad sort of political, uh, official perspective, I mean, what you describe as civic development, and which occurs in the social realm and the public sphere, and is meant to, to build empathy, mutual understanding, and better relations within and between traditions, and obviously between North and South, that's of particular um, importance. Now, it's probably an unfair question to ask you um, to say which of the other areas um, are the most significant and of course they're mutually reinforcing as well but I suppose which areas do you think are most sort of fully um, supported at the at the moment? Uh, the predominant focus certainly of both of the arts councils is on art form and artist development which they would imagine if they were here say so was absolutely right uh, and proper. Um, I, also, I think it's a question of where where are you ultimately going with this, which is why we included that civic element, because I would probably argue from a personal point of view that all of those other areas of development should all be leading to the civic development area. That's not necessarily the case um, in terms of what we found out in the report. It's important to emphasise as well that there were different ways of looking at cross-border cooperation, and there was a report that had been done by uh, Professor Deirdre Heaney at the University of Ulster immediately preceding our work around health. And she had taken a completely different focus in that she was looking at reallocation of resources and effectively saying, well, we could close this hospital and close this hospital and build a much better one here and so on. That wasn't our remit. Um, we weren't saying, oh, you know, shut down this theatre, build a new theatre, etc. It was more a mapping exercise and then looking at policy. So we needed to find a way of bringing together all the different perspectives in a kind of shorthand, if you like, that, that we could kind of articulate it in a more meaningful way, I guess. And, and I'm assuming that, you know, that at least for some artists, um, you know, they don't particularly like the idea of being yoked to political um, objectives, no matter how, how were they? Your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that would be true. Um, I mean, again, it's important to differentiate within the, the landscape of, of state-funded culture, which was the predominant focus here. Um, you do have this complete spectrum from individual artists all the way up to very large uh, organizations. So, um, I mean, I always say whenever I, I teach cultural policy at university that 
whatever argument you make where you try to generalize about the art sector, somebody will always have an example to disprove your theory because it's so kind of diverse and operates across so many different scales. But yes, we were very conscious all the way through and we were given a very clear uh, direction from the Arendt's committee um, around uh, self-evidently remaining politically neutral, but also being aware of and sensitive to the again the many different standpoints that were going to inform people's articulation of their rationales and their experience and just to say that of course as our listeners um know aaron's is itself resolutely non-partisan and seeks to be impartial in publishing you know research from as many different perspectives and from as many different areas as as possible and i should also just note that the study by Professor Heaney, to which you um, referred, was actually the subject of the first podcast in this series quite a, a while ago. Um, how healthy would you say the current state of cooperation is? Uh, and I suppose, are there differences by sector? Um, and also, as regards the different rationales that you mentioned, as well as civic development, professional development, art form development, audience development, and economic development, Clearly, I mean, reading the report, you you think there's a lot that could be done better. Um, but uh, overall, how healthy is that state of cooperation? I don't know. I'm not sure health is the right adjective for it. I mean, uh, it was interesting as we were doing the report, we began to ask ourselves, well, how much cross-border cooperation is enough cross-border cooperation? It, 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 it sort of it unraveled a little bit as we were doing the works. We were doing, well, what does good look like here? Where there's no measurement or yardstick for articulating this, whether it's you know, whether it's healthy or whether it's sufficient or whether it's you know bountiful or whatever. Um, I mean, I think what was interesting was it's. I would probably say it was piecemeal, in that there are there are funding streams uh, frequently co ran and co funded by the two different arts councils. So there are structural elements to cross-border cooperation. And then there are, of course, all-island organisations that work across both areas, and there are uh, national organisations which tour and so on. So the, the cooperation happens in lots of different ways. But what we heard a lot from practitioners, um, and maybe Darren has something to say on this, is that some people felt there was a lack of structure, a lack of information, a lack of direction, some people felt there was plenty, and why would anybody say that? Um, and I think a lot of that was dependent on individual background and individual experience, because we had a lot of people born in the Republic who lived in the North, and so therefore felt quite comfortable and had networks and connections that pre-existed, and they could take them with them. Um, uh, Jimmy Fayette, Lyric Theatre in Belfast, a perfect example of that, having had a kind of career working in the theatre sector in Dublin and then and then taking the helm of Lyric, he could bring his networks with him. Um, and I think it was kind of a, also a, a question of personal disposition. It was also a question of whether people felt that was something that their organisation should do. And often they weren't sure because there was a lack of clear frameworks about that. Um, so uh, it's very healthy in certain areas. Certain people have been doing really dedicated, really good work for many, many years. Other people are at the position where they're not sure where to start. So. Darren, can we come to you? Um, maybe you could just briefly outline 
what it is that you do in, 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 in Beyond Skin and also, you know, what your practical experience of the role of the arts in promoting, you know, cross-community relations in Northern Ireland has been before we move on to the North-South dimension. Um, well, we, we've been going for 18 years and I suppose there's a lot of parallel lines in what we do because at the core, we're using the arts in, in peace building, you know, and, and kind of community development work. But uh, we've always been, uh, when you're when you're surrounded, I'm a, I'm a musician myself, I'm surrounded by a very large team of, of creative people from diverse parts of the world. When you have that diversity and that creativity in your camp, then the artistic output as well is is really interesting. And I suppose to put that in real terms, at the Arts Council, I've sat in a room with the Arts Council and you tell my idea to get it. You sit in a room with more of our um, Peace Four or an executive or more of our council institutions and you just get a blank, a blank stare because they don't get it. Um, so that's, that's a very obvious difference. And we piloted this stuff where the Arts Council have funded it and then other people have got it. This is well, now we get it. So we've always pushed the, the, the creativity. And not only just, I mean, we're talking about borders. It's not only about working the kind of north-south um, of the island, but also we've worked with 32 countries collaboratively as well and looking at our, our, our global neighbours. So looking at borders in a different context as well and involving people within the music industry. And I suppose to go back to the very start very quickly, I suppose for me, in, in community development and peace building and just making making life better for everybody. For me, the arts is at the very top. You know, it's it's beside our, our friends in the sports sector as well. It, for me, it's where it's at regarding bringing people together and especially music because there's a science behind music. There's a science between how our, our brains function and how we respond to environmental sound and music. So it's, it's in, our, in our DNA of how we function as human beings regarding music. So that for me is, it needs to be at the very top of what we do. And over the years, we've done amazing projects. I suppose last year, more recently, we did an amazing project with Nine Girls in Northern Ireland. Did a collaboration with the Afghan Women's Orchestra. And that collaboration was enough to um, change a ban on girls singing in Afghanistan. You know, so when you get nine teenagers in Northern Ireland can influence policy in a different country through music, for me, that just, that's exactly what we're dealing with every day, and that's, that's one example. And specifically within Northern Ireland um, and uh, you know, people from different traditions working together, um, you know, well, first of all, have you, you know, any examples of that which you think are particularly telling? Um, and secondly, have you a sense that that kind of work has, as it were, you know, had a wider reach you know beyond the artists themselves and their immediate audiences i suppose i mean i'm always interested in these studies and, and research done on, on the arts because you know with the arts you know it's like going to a gallery you look at a painting and people interpret it in a different way and that's okay and i some some research comes out uh, i've read from other researchers and they think it's a complete piece and they say well, it's a complete piece it's it's totally wrong because Arts is all about the space, it's about the unknown, uh, it's about the, the gaps. So for me, it's important to recognise those spaces and, and have that unknown there, and that's okay. And we, we accept that because that's the way people think uh, creatively. Um, I suppose for us, what we've been doing, which is quite interesting, is 
it's making sure we bring in, use nuance to bring in people who are excluded from conversations. We're probably one of the few uh, organizations that work extensively with the refugee, asylum-seeking and ethnic minority community in tandem with the loyalist marching band community. Um, I know we've been criticized for that because people see see that community as, as, as a different kind of politics and kind of anti this and anti that. Um, from our experience, we haven't seen that. In fact, um, the Loyalist Band community were the first to offer homes for Afghan musicians uh, when we had a call it last year. So we've been doing that of involving people with different political views, but using music as as a, as a kind of tool for, for conversation, not in a tech box way, but actually collaborating together and working through stuff together through music and arts. And it's, it's, it's been really beneficial and we've merely made headway in a lot of it. But unfortunately, all of it hasn't been recognised. Um, so we always kind of fight in that battle because some people are, are against um, you know progress as well, unfortunately. Um, but we, we've had great success that way of including communities. And that's, that's the genius of the arts about not just sense inclusive on a piece of paper, but actually actioning things which actually bring people into space to do something which they learn from each other, but also the output is something really tremendous regarding the creativity. Thanks, Darren. And we'll come back to some of those points in a, in a moment. But Stephen, I got the sense from your report that, you know, to an extent, there's a sense that, you know, Northern and Southern artists and administrators at times are, are not sure how interested their audiences actually are in, in work from the other part of the, the island. Um, and I was going to ask you, therefore, in your experience, how do Northern artists and administrators view the South and and vice versa? Is one side more interested in, than the other or is there an equality of interest or uninterest? That is a very complex question. Um, I think it's probably the element of the report that will most interest and or surprise people when they read it is that that the, there isn't a a uniform response to that. And there were the, it was the it was the element of the research as well that that brought out the strongest opinions and the, the more emotional responses from everybody that we spoke to. And I think as well, it's impossible to differentiate a professional perspective from an individual one in this context because everybody has their own reading and their own understanding and their own experience of the border in uh, on the island of Ireland and, and where they sit in relation to that. Um, even myself as somebody from Manchester, I've lived in Belfast for 15 years, I work in Dublin, so I crossed the border to come and talk to you today. Um, and it's impossible really to kind of disentangle all of those different perspectives, but uh, suffice to say, the assumption that everybody sees cross-border cooperation as both to be welcomed and unproblematic is not correct. Um, and we were perhaps a little bit guilty of of starting from a set of assumptions of how people thought and what they were going to say. So it was interesting to find that there was a mixed response and a, certainly a degree of antipathy. Um, it sits in a much, much broader context, not even the political context. It sits in uh, that kind of macro socioeconomic level um, in terms of the wealth disparity, in terms of healthcare provision, in terms of, uh, in terms of arts funding levels, which are 
wildly disproportionate between the two arts councils. Um, in, in, in which direction or which way? Uh, the Arts Council in Dublin receives a much greater uh, per capita level of funding than the Arts Council in Belfast, uh, much greater. Um, and I think that also, I mean, inevitably, uh, you know, you're having this conversation, uh, the different population levels, different wealth levels, different levels of economic prosperity, different governments, different levels of functioning government, et cetera, et cetera. You have a whole, a whole social civic sphere of issues there within which the arts sit uh, to try and have this conversation. Um, but certainly it was a sense that the, to be blunt, I guess, a sense that for a number of people we spoke to in the South and North didn't really exist in a meaningful sense. Mm. Um, and that perception and those, those kinds of ways of seeing both the border and the land beyond it, um, you know, go back a long time and have, have deep roots uh, in terms of that. So I think it uh, going forward in terms of exploring more around cross-border cooperation i think it's important just to not not work on sets of assumptions that mm. aren't correct for everybody i mean i suppose there are differences by art form as as well i mean one would assume that you know painting after all or or music um are, are less easily or cannot easily be categorized whereas i suppose literature and theater are are different just out of curiosity i mean because i'm, I'm actually reading at the moment a um, a book of poetry by Gail Campbell from, from Belfast. Um, any sense of you know how how well, as it were, Northern works and and works relating specifically to Northern Ireland? Because this book of poetry is very powerful because it centres around the the murder of her father um, in the nineteen eighties. Uh, you know, again, it's an impression. Maybe it's just an impression you can offer. Um, but is there a certain resistance in the South? from audiences, do you think, to, to confronting um, some of the work that comes from Northern Ireland? That question's tied into one of the really interesting nuances about the rationales, which you asked about earlier, because on the one hand, if you if you look at this, this activity and say, well, the rationale here is to enable artists from the North to engage with audiences from the South, that has one set of assumptions attached to it. If the, if the rationale is to take specifically Northern Irish art forms or artworks to engage with audiences in South, that's different again. Um, and then you end up in this very complicated situation of saying, well, is jazz produced by a musician from Belfast, Northern Irish jazz, or is it just jazz? What are we trying to do here? Is there some kind of strange soft power, cultural diplomacy dynamic happening within all of this? Is that explicit or is it implicit? Um, and I think, again, there were kind of anecdotal references in the interviews around different use of language, different sense of humour within audiences. So certain things just didn't land in particular places in the way that, that uh, actors had, uh, had expected and so on. Um, but equally, there were, there, were, there were common sense questions here because if it's simply about taking, say, theatre over the border, you might well then ask a common sense question going, well, is there not enough theatre in Dublin? Are they, are they short of theatre? Do they need do they need our theatre? You know, I mean, and it might sound slightly facile, but because when you think of this in terms of 
if you looked at that in economic terms, you wouldn't be, you know, uh, transporting goods over the border to Dublin if there was a surfeit of goods already there. So the, the, it's part of why we try to kind of create that, that framework of rationales, because often the, the tensions between them in terms of what's happening here. And actually, again, a lot of the time when you try to get under the skin again, well, what is it you're trying to achieve here other than this short-term tour or, or production or whatever? Often the answers were slightly lacking. So I think it needs a, it needs a kind of more rigorous uh, approach. I mean, I suppose also just a, an observation, and I think this is sort of touched on, that whether you're in the north or whether you're in the south, I mean, many people see, you know, true success, as it were, as being achieved in London um, or even in New York if if, if, if they get the breaks. Um, so that, I suppose, is for some you know, performers at the top end, if you like, the most successful, that's kind of their, their priority. Absolutely. I mean, the point was made to us, quite a few times that the approach when you're thinking about this idea of cross-border in, in quotation marks isn't necessarily just north-south it's also for example east-west mm. um, and that also hits on your earlier point about the difference in art forms um, and this is about economies of scale and cost in the sense of if you're if you're producing uh, an opera performance you by dint of the need of extremely elite singers and set designers and so on you actually have to do it in a collaborative way because simply the resources aren't there um publishing was interesting because a number of people said to us well all of the major publishing houses are in london why would i be looking to either belfast or dublin everybody's looking to london in publishing because that's where the industry is based um and equally there are also very very practical mundane concerns again you know that some art forms travel across borders if you're a stand-up comic you can go and perform wherever you like whenever you want to um if you're an orchestra not so much <laughs> so there are there are there are very mundane kind of practical concerns but there are also these broader issues for example people were saying that uh, Edinburgh and the International and Fringe Festivals were a much more important platform for them to to go if they were going to if they were going to cross the border that would be the one that they would cross rather than uh, the one uh, on this island. So yes, a whole kind of plethora of different concerns there. Uh, Darren, what's your own experience of um, cooperation with you know either individuals or organisations in the in the Republic? Um, it's, it's it's always been a very positive one. I think the barrier we come across is, you know, is this with the kind of more your institutional funding. I say the Arts Council have been great. As more kind of your more government unit funding, which just seems to be nearly over they overthink things, you know. And, you know, and I'm an artist as well, and you we're working with when you talk of borders, we're working with now helping well over 200 people who have come to our shores seeking sanctuary, who who whose view of borders have a, have a really real experience of, of that uh, regarding their own kind of safety. So I suppose my, my big thing is uh, we a lot of institutions, there seems to be this world we operate in with our own language in the kind of more the community sector uh, and peace building sector and good relations. Where you know they do engage music, but not um, sometimes in a very tech boxy way. I have to say, um, I always ch challenge people when they 
they invite us to help out to organize their multicultural festival. And I'm not saying anything is wrong with the world with the word, but I always ask them, like, well, just out of curiosity, what's the difference between a multicultural festival and a festival? You know, because I think language is really important and we like to sing, set things up as something of the other. And the cross-border stuff is, is sometimes set up like that of we're going to work with the other. And for me, that's that's wrong approach totally. Um, when, uh, when you look at popular culture, it's uh, when people tour and, um, and you know, want to perform in different countries, there's a totally different outlook on it regarding the language that's used in the kind of community sector. It's really like a forced thing. Um, and I, I suppose the other thing which we've been shouting about uh, is, you know, this inclusive of, of people being included. Uh, and we're working with people who have come to our shores. Um, Belfast is a UNESCO city of music. You know, and my argument was always been, if you've been born here, you've moved here over a number of years, or you arrived five minutes ago, it, it belongs to you. You're, you're part of it immediately. Um, so I think so, including voices that may not have lived here for a long time, have just arrived, who probably don't engage much with you know, different things going on in the community sector because sometimes they're just really dull, to be honest. Um, and, you know, conferences, for example, are probably a very dull affair on most occasions because it's not how we function as human beings. We function our best around arts, around music, great, great spaces and food. Uh, but a lot of these events put on, it's music as the interlude or kind of incidental music at the start or a short performance when that needs to be turned on its head where the arts is at the centre of the conversation. Um, so we've always had those really interesting conversations across border and partners get it and they totally understand it. But we're all up against the same wall of trying to make the funders see it in our way, which is which is always a challenge, always a challenge because... And to give you an example, just to finish, we did a really exciting project last year. We did, um, uh, for Music Day, we did Interpretation of John Cage, 433, which for people who aren't familiar with it, it's um, a composition where musicians don't play anything at all. It's about the environmental sounds. And we did a, um, a collaboration with 22 countries and people were getting very excited. And I sat in many council rooms and, and online where people were getting really excited about what we had done. And then people asked us, well, what are they going to play together? And I said, well, nothing. And um, <clears throat> for, for a lot of people, they just did not understand why, why you would do that. Why we'd spend all that energy getting musicians from 22 countries, they'd be going out location, filming themselves to play nothing. Um, but it's, it's, it's an amazing performance piece and there's been a huge legacy from it, uh, generating a lot of conversations as well. Um, so it's when you do those kind of things within the arts, again, they just don't sit on, on, on the radar at all with a lot of our you know, more council executive funding, peace fours, and, and likewise, more institutional uh, funders. <clears throat> they just see arts as a more of a, a conveyor belt where they can put on an event and have Indian people doing Bollywood dancing and African people playing African drums and so on. And it doesn't really serve a wider purpose. No, and, and indeed, and of course, there is often a kind of a, a tokenism when, um, and I, I've been guilty of it myself, in my role as a diplomat and, and writing speeches for ministers and so on, of finding the appropriate quotation um, and uh, in particular trying to find something other than Yeats or, or Heaney to put into a, 
into a speech. Um, just a question: Are is there any kind of analogous organisation to yours in the in the in the south um, that you're aware of? Uh, beyond skin, yeah. Um, there's there's because we work across all art forms. Uh, there's none really kind of. Uh, there's a couple of ones that in Cork we're aware of and so on have done tremendous stuff. Um, but there's more, they're specific to like where it's theatre or music or visual arts and so on. So I think because we're cutting across all the genres, um, uh, there's probably none which aligns exactly to us. And of course, a lot of people doing great work supporting uh, people who have come to seek asylum as well. So there is that going on. It's just finding who's out there um, and usually you find it's the people who are underfunded under-resourced are, are doing the, the really good work at the grassroots level um, uh, but it's hard to kind of again map who's out there and I think with the COVID uh, we we felt that a lot of kind of um, it was just a big gap that needs to now be brought in again of of who's gone who's who's now set up something and kind of remap the whole area. The reference to Cork is interesting um, because one of the points you make, Stephen, in the report, I mean, is that there is this tendency to think of cooperation as being between Belfast and, and Dublin. Um, and as someone, I suppose, born and brought up and who spent his entire career working in, well, apart from periods abroad, I should say, working in Dublin, um, there's that natural tendency. Um, but you talk about cross-border cooperation as well in a, in a narrower sense um, involving people in the border region and regions. Um, but of course, there are also collaborations which can operate, I suppose, between Belfast and, and Cork, indeed, as, as Darren mentioned. But are there particular challenges, do you think, in, for that? There are. Um, again, some of those are, are quite mundane. Um, the chronic lack of transport infrastructure across the whole island of Ireland is a key issue if if you're looking to tour. Um, it's not so bad if you want to come and have a meeting and if you jump on Zoom or whatever, but if you want to tour a production or a group of musicians or so on, um, you'll be holding to <laughs> patchy uh, lack of motorway and rail network, for example, um, or even good roads. Um, so there were very very kind of top level infrastructural issues. There is then also the, the very obvious issue of having to navigate two jurisdictions, potentially two different funding uh, structures, two different policy frameworks. And of course, uh, as, as Darren's mentioned as well, since COVID has landed, we've also had Brexit. And so the what was previously not straightforward has now become quite complex um, and we're seeing I mean a lot of the initial feedback that we had during the report was a kind of sense of a, a kind of apathy and a reluctance to really engage with what Brexit might mean uh, in terms of trying to, to do things that should be straightforward and should be you know about uh, the desire to engage, the desire to share information, the desire to share skills, uh, exchange and so on uh, was just going to become too problematic. So we're, that's still, I think, a work in progress. Um, and there are issues here around uh, people we spoke to were saying, well, if we wanted to get international musicians to fly into Dublin and then perform in Belfast, we now can't get visas and uh, things are just becoming the administrative burden 
um, which is in many ways deeply political administrative burden, was just becoming such a disincentive for people who are already quite under-resourced and um, you know have other things to do with their time. So I think there is a real issue there for the arts councils and perhaps even at a departmental level to step up and try and at least streamline or simplify some of these processes because it, there can be a tendency in the funded cultural sector to kind of cascade responsibility down from on high onto each individual organisation. And in Northern Ireland, um, where I've worked extensively in the cultural sector, the, the bulk of the cultural sector in Northern Ireland is kind of what what you would call micro organizations kind of you know less than five employees they're already overburdened they don't need to have to try and engage with the tax implications of brexit when somebody else could do it on a sector-wide basis so i think there is a real ongoing and the arts councils have produced documentation and information and so on about this but it's still it's still certainly at the time of the report remains something of an unknown quantity in terms of what the implications would be Yes, it's worth reminding people that, of course, while the um, the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol, uh, love it or hate it, uh, cr you know, maintains a single market on the island for for goods, that services are, of course, not covered by it, and services include, um, you know, the production of uh, of of of, uh, of music and theatre and 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 so forth, other cultural activities. Um, but just to, back to my sort of initial question. In terms of cooperation, as I say, across the border, I mean, between in, in regions, are there any particularly strong links between, for example, arts officers in, in local councils that you could think of as a as good practice um, or or is it very much hit and miss? It's a fascinating question because the we found that the the focus of particularly European funding, but also the whole idea of cross-border cooperation gravitated, as one might expect, to the actual border. And then an awful lot of the feedback we got, particularly from projects that had been run, um, some of those are featured in the report, run in that border and with communities on both sides of the border, was that there was no border. And people who lived on the border in those towns and villages just walked backwards and forwards and lived their families were outside of the border and so on. And it simply wasn't it wasn't this pressing social political concern for them in a way that you might understand if you lived in East or West Belfast, for example. So we actually came to the conclusion that actually we needed to make sure and be very explicit that when we talked about cross-border collaboration, that could be between somebody in Cork and somebody in Ballymena. It didn't. It sh certainly shouldn't be uh, Dublin and Belfast. But also that then led us to try and engage with all of the local authority officers, uh, both north and south, because we wanted to know whether the local authority arts officer in Cork had cross-border cooperation on their radar, simply by virtue of where they sat geographically. Um, the island of Ireland is tiny. <laughs> in many ways, but when you're here, you sort of think, "Oh, I can't go from I can't go from Cork to Derry slash London Derry." Um, you know, it's opposite end of the island. Um, those kinds of distances, if, for example, you live in Canada, are just daily commutes. You know, so there are there are whole kind of what we term psychographic perceptions of the border, and we also felt in many ways that 
people in Belfast saw the border as being a much more physical, tangible thing than people who lived on the border did. So paradoxically, the further away you are from the border, the more of a of an issue the border becomes. Um, so certainly one of the one of the things we'd like to see develop out of this is a much broader uh, focus on on not on that border region, uh, which has has had a lot of funded nuts that wasn't well deserved. But as I think of pulling back and thinking, well, this could be joining up any of the dots anywhere here, and we need to have a much more kind of holistic viewpoint on it. Yeah, of course, the peace peace the success of peace programs and the International Fund for Ireland, their, their remit, you know, within the Republic is confined to the, the border counties. Um, and I don't imagine that will that will change. Uh, we're coming to the end of our discussion. I mean, one thing which came out very clearly to me, um, Stephen, from your report uh, is a, a sort of a sense of a, a lack of strategic thinking or overarching policy. And, and this is something one assumes, which is ultimately for for departments, for for ministers, um, it is interesting that um, we're we're actually recording this uh, in the week of um, mourning um, for Queen Elizabeth. So a shared island um, event, which was meant to be taking place in Belfast this week, uh, is now not taking place. It will be it's being postponed, and no doubt it will um, happen sh soon. Um, but. Do you see any sign that at the political level there would be uh, a kind of a an enthusiasm uh, to work on on these issues and to put them into a more strategic framework, or is it simply you know impossible in the absence of a functioning executive in Northern Ireland, for example? Is there sufficient commitment at the political level in the in the south? I'd probably pull back from the suggestion that there's a lack of strategic thinking. Um, I think that would do a disservice, I mean, particularly to the, the whole range of, of academics, for example, who work uh, in great detail on the topic. But there is, you're quite right. Well, I'm, say, no, I'm, I'm, not, no, I'm thinking very yeah. much of government. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there is there is a lack of, there is there is no policy document. And it's, the, that was, the rationale for that was very clearly articulated to us by the people we spoke to in Northern Ireland because... Both, I mean, the department used to be Department of Culture, Arts and Leisure. It's now Department of Communities that has responsibility for the arts. It has been something of a political football over the years uh, in Northern Ireland. And the priorities of that department sway with the political win. So there's a lack of consistency of being able to have those dialogues as a, as a kind of a priori. Um, but equally, there was the, because of the way that particularly in Northern Ireland, but also in more subtle ways in the South, that culture and the state promotion of culture is tied into national identity mm. and personal identity. It becomes difficult to formulate a document for cross-border cooperation that wouldn't fall foul of certain political dispositions, particularly in the North. And so why create a target and put it on your own back in order to try and move things forward? However, just to kind of loop back to our initial conversation, and for example, Deirdre Heenan's report, there are very clear economic rationales, for example, not artistic rationales, but economic rationales 
that would be beneficial to everybody. There are civic rationales that would be beneficial to everybody that needn't be beholden to promoting particular traditions or particular art forms or so on. Um, so I think it's about just boxing clever in the sense of saying, look, there, there are there are very obvious win-win situations here for everybody if we approach this and frame it in the right way. Um, rather than simply being seen to be kind of, uh, you know, as was expressed to us frequently, trying to have this kind of Trojan horse for, for United Ireland, which is obviously never the intention of the report uh, or the Orange Project at all. And it's, it's, it's that sensitivity and that tact in the framing of it um, that I think is what needs to be kind of taken forward. Um, Stephen, I'm going to ask you at, at the end the what you would say are the sort of two or three you know most important recommendations. But um, but Darren, to ask you, um, and leaving aside more money, um, which of course is probably priority number one, um, are there two or three things that you think, um, you know, public authorities could be doing to better uh, to support your work and indeed the issues of reconciliation, say both within Northern Ireland and between North and South? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say it's our, our government levels. There's there's a complete lack of vision, to be honest, regarding, um, and, and I know everything gets political very quickly, but there is a complete lack of vision. And the, the, the resource, um, I've always described it as, especially people come to our shores who are living in hotels at the minute, not allowed to work. I mean, it's, it's like a treasure chest that could really lift our economy into orbit. But we've got our decision makers sitting on the lid. It's that scenario for me. And I think they need to have people around the table who are not the usual suspects. But when you bring creative people into space, they're 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 problem solvers and they, they, they bring solutions to the table as well. Um, it's just the way people think who are more creative within the arts. And I just don't see that happening at all. Uh, we get invited to some consultation stuff, it ends up in the shelf somewhere. Um, but to really action a lot of creative thinking out there, um, which is really, I say, a lot of problem solving. And you know, within my team, throughout COVID, we we never stopped. We had three days off over Christmas through the two years because we we found solutions of still doing stuff and still uh, inventing new technology to do it and new techniques. So there, there's there's that creative energy there, which is not being harnessed whatsoever. Uh, in a real way and that, that's a big frustration and that could really change things I'm just very quickly as well against the language as soon as you say cross-border it has connotations already of this is a you know this is a forced political agenda behind this and I think we just need to call it collaboration or you know remove the word border because it just suddenly puts up a barrier before we've even begun and people have different um, ways they view that word so again, it's like the, the multicultural festival festival thing. It's is you just make it festival or you know a collaboration, uh, and use different language, which which shows integration before we've even begun, um, and shows that it's possible to do stuff together artistically. Stephen, as I say, you've talked about the old question of a an overarching sort of policy framework, but what? In the report are, are other kind of you know, key recommendations that you'd wish to highlight? I think key for me is the issue of data. Um, I started using Taylor Swift um, 
as an example in a lot of the conversations we had because there are if you look at the if you look at the population of of this island when there were big concerts the man in the cowboy hat who's on in dublin uh at the moment, or whether you two or Taylor Swift or, or a particular artist of your choice, there are actually huge migrations of people over this border, backwards and forwards, for culture. So part of the solution to this, I think, is to take this quite limiting concept of the arts, whatever that means, and put it in a much broader context, whether you want to, whether you want to do that in terms of culture or whether you want to talk about the culture and creative industries, because the capacity that Darren has spoken about for shared and communal experiences and all of the things that that generates are not limited to the things that arts councils fund or that Department for Communities or, or so on wants to see happen. Um, and people are crossing the border in huge numbers to engage in cultural activities. And that is not factored into this conversation, partly because... It's not seen to be the arts, also because we don't have the data. And we started to realize as we were working through the project going, if we had the system, if we were able to track not just what was happening in the arts, but also what was happening, you know, every event that Aiken Promotions was running, you know, you've got these commercial cultural promoters with offices both sides of the border who are working cross-border have done it's their business model operating at scales that most of the cultural sector can kind of only dream of you know um so i think it's about situating it in that broader context with very obvious benefits and conversations with the tourism bodies etc etc there's a huge amount of kind of spillovers uh, if you like to this approach but actually having the data that showed us what's happening, being able to map it, being able to see what the influencing factors were would be a huge step forward because in so much of this, if you can provide that empirical evidence base, it goes a long way to mitigating people's individual political perceptions in the same way that health or education can make an argument of saying, well, we will save 500 million euros if we build this school and close this school and there will be better educational attainment in these local areas and so on. It's the capacity to make those types of arguments alongside the personal and the experiential kind of thing that people have when they go to those events. Um, so I think it's about situating the arts in that much broader context because if you have an argument that's based on data and that data is is rigorous and it's been, you know, there's a sound methodology behind it. It's by definition apolitical. And I think that will move us much further down the road to having a kind of uh, a kind of better informed and more productive conversation. That's uh, certainly uh, an agenda for, for the future. Stephen Hadley and Darren Ferguson, thank you both very much indeed um, for taking part in this uh, conversation, which I personally have found really uh, interesting and enlightening. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron's It's a Joint Project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent, and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional, and policy options for Ireland North and South 
in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.